So we're back in the Old Testament today. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 41. We're going to be talking about Joseph a little bit this morning. Um, and I think most of us are pretty familiar with the story of Joseph. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you probably had a flannel graph or two about Joseph. <laughs> um, so, but I'm just going to review it really quick, just so that we're all um, familiar. So Joseph was born to Jacob. He was called Israel. Um, he was sold by his brothers into slavery, worked for Potiphar in Egypt. Potiphar's wife uh, accused Joseph of something that he did not do, and Joseph was put in prison. So he was in the same prison as the one where Pharaoh's prisoners were put, and he happened to be in there when two of Pharaoh's servants were put into prison as well. Now, before those two, the baker and the chief cupbearer were put in, the Bible tells us that Joseph was in prison for some time. That's the words that they use. We don't know how long that is. So Joseph interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, um, and he asks the cupbearer, when you get out, will you remember me? Will you tell Pharaoh about me? And he doesn't. So um, Pharaoh has a dream a little while later, and nobody can interpret it. And the cupbearer is like, oh, wait. There was this guy in prison that interprets dreams. You should go ask him. Um, and so Pharaoh does, and Joseph interprets his dreams, and it's the seven years of, of plenty and the seven years of famine. And so um, Pharaoh appoints Joseph as the second most powerful man in Egypt. So, you know, if you look at Joseph's story, you're like, everything turned out okay. Like, everything turned out pretty good, actually, for Joseph. He ended up with um, a wife and money and children and food and power. Um, so it's pretty good. But look back at Genesis 41. We're going to just look at the first part of verse 1. After two whole years. So Joseph was in prison for two whole years. And um, he didn't have the rest of Genesis 41 or 42 or the rest of the Bible to find out what happens to him. Now, he did have a dream back in Genesis 37 that um, the dream about his brothers bowing down to him, which was the reason his brothers didn't like him. Um, so he had that dream, but we don't know if Joseph knew how long he'd be in prison for, or if he would ever get out of prison, or if he would die in prison, or anything like that. We don't know what he knew. But we do know, look at Genesis 39, verse 2. We do know the Lord was with Joseph. And then verse 3 the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. And we know that he knew, look at 39.21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Verse 23, the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord, or Joseph, knew that the Lord was with him. So now I doubt that any of us have been in prison for any extended period of time without knowing when we would be released. But have you ever had to endure something for a long period of time, not knowing if it will ever go away? I think we all have had a situation like that. It could be a physical ailment, <clears throat> a health issue. It could be migraines. It could be cancer. It could be a difficult relationship with your spouse or your child or a friend. It could be um, an internal struggle with sadness or doubt. Um, it could be loss, you know, the loss of a relationship or the loss of hope or physical loss um, of, a, of someone you love. It could be your, your thought life, something you're struggling with for a long period of time. And it's possible that you're in the midst of this right now. Um, you don't know. This hard thing's happening. We don't know when it's going to end. Um, but we do know exactly what Joseph knew. And because we have Genesis 41 and beyond, we know a lot about the Lord. We know that God is with us. We read about that in God's word. We know he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He's sovereign. He's working all things for our good. He's loving and faithful and righteous and holy and unchangeable and wise, and we could just keep on going, right? And because we have God's word and we can go there, we can remind ourselves of the providence of God. And I like the word providence, and I heard this um, description of what providence means. Providence is the sovereignty of God, God's in control, connected with the goodness of God. So he's in control for our good. And that's just such a comforting um, thing for me to think about. So 
God is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows about those migraines or that loss that you're experiencing or whatever you're struggling through. Um, he has a good purpose that he's accomplishing, even in that hard situation that you're in. Um, but we know that God knows all things. God works all things for good to those who are in Christ. And if you remember Romans 8:29, we were there not that long ago on Sunday mornings. You see that the good that God is doing in us is conforming us to Christ. And um, we know that because we can read about it in God's word. And we just need to remind ourselves, right? We need to remind ourselves every day, sometimes more often than that. Um, sometimes it's every minute. We need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. And that's what discipline is, right? It's being faithful to shepherd our hearts toward God with the word of God, so the truth that we know from God's word, and to, to shepherd our hearts with the gospel, reminding ourselves of the truth that we were undeserving sinners, God chose to redeem us, we did nothing to deserve it, but he redeemed us because it brought him glory. And we know what happens when we're faithful to shepherd our hearts in that way. What happens is it spills over to our homes and then we are able to cause our homes to flourish because we're caring for our hearts with God's word. And then we've been in Wellspring long enough since, what did we start? September. We know what happens next. Discipline three, right? We're caring for our hearts and we're blessing our homes and then we're here. You're here and you're blessing each other simply by being here. But then you can come alongside each other. You can encourage one another. You can admonish one another if necessary. Um, and maybe God is bringing these trials and these difficulties into our lives so that we can minister well to each other. And I think uh, suffering can make us more useful to God because it humbles us. Um, it's a good place for us to be. And when we come to grips with our own weakness, then we can see that Christ really is strong. We're not doing it through our own strength. And so I encourage you that when you're at home later today or you're, you're gone from here, and whatever you're struggling with rears its ugly head, if it's your thoughts or something physical or your heart, whatever it is, be faithful. That word is in all of our disciplines. Be faithful to remind yourself of who God is. And we can do this. We can do this by bringing our hearts to God's word. We can look for God's character in God's word. Um, we can remind ourselves of our gift of salvation, and we can praise God. Um, because he has promised he would be with us, just like he was with Joseph, and his steadfast love never ceases. So let's pray, and then John will come on teach. Heavenly Father, thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you for, you have promised that you would never leave us, you would never forsake us, and you don't. Thank you for being steadfast. <clears throat> You are always with us. You are always aware of what's going on. You are always orchestrating everything for our good and for your glory. And that is why we are here. God, I pray that you would help us to remind ourselves of that. Um, remind ourselves of that when we are going through something difficult, through suffering or trials. Remind ourselves of that when things are good and, and easy. God, that we would never stray from the truth of, of who you are, of your character. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. All right. Thanks, Melissa. So I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I have a handout for you. And uh, this is going to be a little... We're going to have about 10 minutes of class. Is that okay? I'm going to, I'm going to nerd out on you for about 10 minutes, and then we'll, get, we'll dive into the text here. So I'll hand you one and then send two down. Actually, I'll send you... Hopefully, I printed 25. It looks like we should be plenty. Maybe maybe we're right at 25. I'm not sure. If we need more, we can get more. Um, I am looking forward to uh, diving into 1 Thess chapter 2 with you guys. This is a, such a sweet text and such an encouraging passage. And I think it's going to be an encouragement to you ladies in your ministry. So... However you're ministering, um, some of you are married, some of you are moms, some of you serve in the church, some of you have uh, jobs, um, but all of you uh, must be serving. And in whatever your ministry is, 
this is an encouragement because what this does is this text is going to give you what's critical um, for successful ministry, faithful ministry. And I think sometimes discouragement can come maybe, maybe, as, a, maybe as a wife, maybe as a mom, uh, maybe as a Sunday school teacher, maybe as a, a discipler, maybe as an employee. It, discouragement can come when we have an unbiblical standard of what success looks like. And we can set ourselves up for failure when we have standards of what does this look like to be a faithful mom? And this is what I've always imagined motherhood would look like. And then we start to uh, get into the trenches of World War I warfare. <laughs> and uh, we think, wow, this is not what I imagined. I must be failing. And it's in critical moments and seasons like that um, that we really have to have a biblical criteria for how do we evaluate successful parenting, successful ministry. And I, and I keep using parenting because that's, that's, a, that's a, probably a typical one, just looking at the demographic here. That's going to be a typical one. But regardless of what your ministry may or may not be, uh, this is still the evaluation of it. Uh, it's my evaluation as a, as a, as a, as a dad, as a, as a husband, as a pastor. Uh, it's the evaluation for all of us as we serve the Lord. And it's Paul's um, non-negotiables for his ministry. So, the reason I'm going to nerd out on you is because I wanted you to have this diagram, and I want to walk through this with you, because what I think is fun is, this, this, is, this is one of those texts that are just so, just so helpful to see the argument unfold, and in fact, it's, it's a go-to passage. When I teach third semester Greek in the seminary, this is a go-to passage. I always take the guys, and we, they have to translate this, and then show up in class, and we diagram it together so that they can see the nature of Paul's argument here. So... Rather than teach you diagramming, uh, and you know, I just I just want to get to first test, but I thought I couldn't I couldn't resist. So at least I gave you the finished product, and then I'm just going to walk you through it. And then what you can do is, some of you guys have some, you know, maybe you have diagramming ability. Maybe you've never done it before. Regardless of where you're at on that spectrum, it doesn't really matter. You'll have a finished product, and you can keep you can see the text, and you can kind of keep going back to it as I teach through it, and see kind of how I'm working through what Paul's saying. So hopefully it's a help, regardless if you know how to diagram or not. Um, this is, uh, you know, there's, there's several ways to diagram. Um, I'm a big proponent of, of block diagramming. What that does is it leaves everything together in its clauses. So to turn out, nerd out on you here for, for a minute, um, you think, uh-oh, clause. What's a clause? <laughs> Pressure's on. <laughs> um, and some of you are teaching this to your kids, so you know it better than I do. I'm like, I get into English, and I struggle. It's like I feel better in Greek than I do in English, so I'm looking at this, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, Clause is every subject and verb relationship and everything that modifies it. So subject-verb relationship. Um, I hit the ball is a complete sentence. So I is the subject, hit is the verb, ball is the object, right? I hit the ball. I hit the ball over the fence. It's still a clause. I just added a prepositional phrase. I hit the ball uh, really far over the fence. Still, I just added a few ad adverbs. I hit the ball so far that it went over the fence. Now, there's two clauses. I hit the ball and... It went over. So a clause is a subject and verb and everything that modifies it. So what this is, is this is a breakdown of this whole passage and every clause gets its own line. And here's what's so sweet about this. Um, sometimes I tell this to the students, you know, we know that every word in scripture is inspired. Everything in scripture is absolutely inspired. There's no uninspired word uh, there's no uninspired, I mean, it's just uh, down to every detail. It is exactly what God intended to say. Now, that's not enough to say every sentence in this passage is inspired. We know that, but we don't really have the passage until we understand what each of those inspired statements contribute to the argument as a whole. So imagine, um, if you look at this diagram, uh, these eight verses are about, I'm just guessing, 16 lines, <clears throat> maybe 20, maybe 20 lines there. So let, let's just say eight verses, there's 20 clauses. Which one's true? All of them. Which one's inspired? All of them. But notice that Paul doesn't just give, he doesn't write to the Thessalonians and say, Paul, to the Thessalonians, 20 truisms. Number one, true statement. Number two, true statement. Number three, true statement. It's not bumper stickers. It's not just unrelated sentences. They, they all relate to one another in a profound way. So that's what I love about this kind of diagram is that rather than just you know, see what's on the page, we actually can start to slow our minds down, pay attention to the nature of the argument, 
and understand, yeah, 1B and 1A, they're both equally true, equally inspired, but the question is what weight does it pull in the argument? Because they're doing different things. So that's what's so helpful about a diagram like this. So just for example, number one, or verse one, for you yourselves know, brethren, use the subject and know is the, is the verb, and uh, the next clause, 1B, that our coming to you was not in vain. So the subject here um, is coming. That's a noun. Our coming. And it sounds like a verb. It's a verbal idea. But the idea would be our arrival. Our arrival. That's the subject. Our arrival was not in vain. That's the, that's the clause there. So there's two clauses in verse 1. Um, and they, they, they kind of have unequal weight. Uh, the first one is very important because it starts with the word for. And you kind of ask the question, what's, what's for? What's it there for, right? So for, what's it there for? Um, for is going to often explain something. It's going to give a grounds or a basis or a reason for something. Um, so we might not use for as much as you see it consistently in the NAS. Um, I, I, I went to the store for I was hungry. That's actually a proper use of the word for, but we're probably going to say because. Because, and a lot of times you see the word be, uh, for in the NAS, you could, you could even insert the word because. Quite often, probably over half the time you see the word for, because would work equally as well. So a lot of times it's a cause or a reason for, for something. Um, not a cause like a, you know, cause and effect, um, but more like a cause, like in the sense of the reason. How can you say this is true? So when you start a chapter like this with a for, we have to, that reminds us, okay, to really, we're about to dive into First Thess here. I've got five more minutes of nerding out on you. So in five minutes, we're going to dive into First, first Thess and, and, and study this passage. Well, you won't even know why I'm going where I'm going unless you understand that the word for is explaining something from chapter one. Okay, so before I go back to the diagram, let me just go ahead and point that out to you. Because I'm, I'm kind of explaining how I got to the, the argument at the bottom and that theme statement at the bottom. Um, so go back to chapter 1, 1 Thess 1, verses 2 through, well, really verse 2 and following, he starts to explain his prayer for the Thessalonians. And he's explaining how he gives, he gives thanks to the Lord for the Thessalonian believers. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So he's thanking God, he's seen the fruit of their salvation, and he knows they are elect. Wow, that's a bold statement. I mean, you talk about, I'm so grateful that I know that you're elect. What? I mean, how in the world do you know the mind of God? I mean, in the mind of God, he chose to save these believers in Thessalonica, and Paul knows it? Yeah, actually I do. How in the world can you make such a bold claim? Verse 5, 4. So that's, that's the nature of a four. It's not a cause and effect like, you know, um, this happened, this happened, you know, the ball rolled down, knocked the ball off the table, whatever. It's, cause, it's, it's more um, a reason for why some, a claim could be made. Paul, how in the world could you say you know that the Thessalonians are elect? Well, here's how I can make that claim. Verse 5, because the gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he's actually giving reasons for how he knows the Thessalonians are elect by God. Because he knows that when he came to them, his ministry was powerful and effective. He goes on to say in verse 8, oh, sorry, verse 8, 6, I'm sorry, verse 6, you became imitators of us, you received the word in much tribulation and joy in the Holy Spirit, I mean, they were being persecuted by their fellow kinsmen, and they would rather have continued in persecution than let go of the word of God. I mean, that's proof right there. What an incredible proof. I came to you. The Lord stirred up my heart. I was bold, even though I just got beat up in the previous town. You guys received the gospel. You started getting persecuted. You would persevered in the truth. Rather than avoid persecution, you hung on to the word of God, continued to be persecuted. I mean, look at all these indicators. It's, it proves you were elect. He's just explaining how he can make such a bold statement and why he's so encouraged in his prayer for the Thessalonians. Verse 8, the word of God has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forward so that we have no need to say anything. 
So when you read chapter 1, you realize that Paul is making some very big statements about how effective the ministry was with the Thessalonians, and he continues giving reasons for how he knows that he had effective ministry. Okay, so now let's just let's go back to the diagram here for a second. I'm about to transition and we'll start a Bible study. Notice 1A, 3, 5A. You see the green highlights there? 4, 4, 4. Notice each of these reasons why Paul knows that his ministry was effective and why he can evaluate his ministry as faithful, each one of them have a contrast. And I highlighted those in yellow, but, but, but. So each of the, there's three reasons, really. And each of those three reasons have a positive and a negative. Or maybe I should, to, to stick with Pauline order, a negative then a positive. <laughs> so notice um, verses 1a, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, and skipped to 2c, but we had boldness. So the negative is vanity. It was not vain. The positive is boldness. And you put that pair together, and you have the first reason why Paul knows that his ministry was successful and faithful, and why he's so encouraged about his ministry among the Thessalonians. Now look at verse 3. Our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Contrast um, that motive for ministry, uh, a negative motivation, um, a negative motive for preaching, uh, he contrasts that with the positive motive in 4C, but in this way we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So now he's talking about um, the motivation for their ministry. And then in, in 5, we didn't come with flattering speech, 5C, nor with a pretext for greed, 6A, nor did we seek glory from men. I mean, he's talking about uh, motives that are completely self-serving. Selfishness. It's just, verses 5 and 6 are just swimming in a sea of selfishness. And he says, that's not what characterized our ministry among you. On the contrast, verse 7, but we proved gentle as a nursing mother, having fond affection, we were well and pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives. Okay, so now he compares apostolic ministry to being the selflessness of a mother. So he's able to say, on the negative, there's selfishness. On the positive, there's selflessness. And that pair becomes another reason and another evaluation for how he evaluates his ministry. So we're going we're gonna to spend our time studying that. So I, I know I didn't explain anything except how I got to those conclusions from the text. And so I wanted you to see that in the grammar here. In the, as, the, as the flow of the argument unfolds, it's just incredibly systematic. It's like, not this, but this. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. And that's really the structure of all the way through verses 1 through 8. So you can keep that uh, diagram there on, your, on the side. And uh, if that's helpful, great. If not, uh, you're not going to offend me if you throw it away. Um, let's dive in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to ask you a question, ladies. How do you know that your ministry is successful? How do you evaluate it? Uh, as a wife, a mother, an employee, church member? You know, if you think about, um, I know as a dad, and I understand, I'm not trying to, de- 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 I don't want to um, depreciate differences between being a, a dad versus a mom, but just as parenting in general, it's just very easy. You walk into parenting and you start thinking about what successful parenting looks like. Um, I remember my oldest, Micah, was born. We lived in Montrose, California. Uh, just graduated seminary. Uh, he's just weeks old. Uh, one night he was crying, and, and for whatever reason, he wasn't because he was hungry. He'd just been fed. And so I'm trying to figure out how to help out. And it's like, okay, well, here's one I can help out with. He's just being a, he's just being a grump. So I, I grabbed him and let April get a little bit more sleep. And so I'm just pacing up and down the living room. And I just remember praying. He's probably three weeks old, and I remember praying for Micah. Micah, our Lord, use Micah. I just want Micah to be used for the kingdom, use him for the sake of the gospel. And in my mind, you know, I'm probably picturing um, a preacher. I'm probably picturing some eloquent articulation of truth 
man of conviction, resembles Luther. <laughs> and this is in my mind as I'm praying for my son. And um, years go by, and you know we're involved in church life and church ministry, and we're hearing from older, experienced parents, and we're hearing you know the traditional. You know, we're sitting on parenting classes, we're sitting in on Bible studies, and we're reading materials, and, you know, you kind of hear there's like a, there's like this body of knowledge from good, wise parents, just like the traditional application of wisdom principles for what it means to raise a child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we heard all of that, and we were probably fluent in all of that, and we were kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, and then we had our second, and we're like, oh, that's why people say that. And other parents were coming along and saying, hey, have you really looked into your oldest? And have you looked into what's, what's going on there developmentally? I'm like, why was old? What do you mean? And it's like, it's, our only, it's the only kid we had. We had nothing to compare it to. And uh, parents who had raised more traditional children immediately recognized the difference. We didn't. And so it's a long process to realize, man, there's some unique challenges here. And we don't, we, we, we're, we're not sure how to, how to enter this kid's world. You know, he was nonverbal till four. Um, you know, just struggled in so many areas. And, um, you know, probably, who knows? Who, I, don't, I, don't imagine, I don't even know. We don't know. There's days where I think, ah, you know, maybe when he was like in the five to eight-year-old range, I'm like, I think he might be able to get married someday. Now I'm like, I don't know if he's going to leave the home. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the future for this kid. And I see... I can see hardness of heart. I can see softness towards his parents still. There's kind of like a teenage ability to rebel, but still like a child ability to process it. And it's just an interesting world. And I'll just be honest, it's not what I expected. And it can feel like a failure if I start to evaluate it with unbiblical criteria. So before you pray that prayer and imagine you're Son giving his speech at Harvard after he finished his law degree. So faithful to finish his law degree after being drafted into the NFL. <laughs> and giving his valedictorian speech, thanking mom for it all. You need to have some biblical criteria. How do you know what faithful ministry looks like? You have to evaluate that biblically. I remember studying this passage. Uh, about a decade ago in ministry, I was college pastor in Jupiter, and um, we had a ministry, probably about 100 students in our college ministry, and in one calendar year, I listed, out, I listed out the names, 36 people left our ministry, complaining about me, complaining about the ministry, complaining about the nature of, you know, whatever. And a lot of it was a lot of influence from Tulian down the road, and a lot of free, you know, oh, these people are legalists because they hold you to the commands of God and all that. So I remember a third of the ministry leaving, and we were, we were blackballed on that Christian campus. You know, Christian campus is like, yeah, we're Christian, unless you go to a church that's biblical. Other than that, we'll be Christian, other than, other than that. And I remember thinking, man, this is just, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I just thought you put in the labor, and then you get the fruit that you expect. Isn't that interesting how the Lord can expose our, our, our estimation of what kind of fruit we ought to receive? Paul doesn't evaluate that ministry, his ministry that way. Thankfully, he gives us a better criteria for ministry. How do we know what faithful ministry looks like? That's the question we're answering. Paul answers with three answers. Number one, and, I'm, and again, I'm following our grammatical outline, so now what you can do is you can take my outline and then go back to this diagram, and the outline, you notice how I, I give you the pairs uh, in, in your outline? Well, I'm going to give you the summary, and then you can write that uh, below the pair. So the summary for that first pair is boldness with offensive truth. So when it says not emptiness but boldness, just write in boldness with offensive truth. It is offensive, and we must be bold with it. And that is a mark of faithful ministry. So number one, boldness with offensive truth. Why do I say that? Because that's what Paul says. Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren. Okay, stop right there. You yourselves know is like a refrain here. 
It's all over this passage. Verse 1, you yourselves know. Verse 2, as you know. Um, skip down to verse uh, 5, as you know. Uh, verse 9, you recall. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, just as you know. I mean, Paul's ministry was so manifest that the Thessalonians could not deny anything he was saying in this passage. And that's actually interesting to think about. If you're thinking about your own ministry, it's, you want to be able to say, hey, when I was ministering to someone, my motives would have been so clearly on display. They wouldn't have had any reasons to doubt my motives. Uh, that, my that my ministry was so evident and so manifest and so transparent. Yeah, it rarely produces the fruit that we often can imagine. But that's really what matters is that our, our ministry would be so manifest and so evident. I mean, I think about that. If my kids walk away from Christ, they should be able to say, I don't believe it, but it's not because of my parents. He, 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 my dad, my mom, they had integrity. I, I saw them... I saw them sin, and they, they confessed it. They had, they had no desire to make themselves to be something. They, they just wanted to give Christ honor. I don't, I don't believe a lick of it, but they were the real deal. That would be what I would hope they would have to say to trample over, hopefully, imperfect but faithful modeling to reject Christ. And so that's, you yourselves know, becomes transparent. It becomes obvious throughout this passage that Paul knows, I'm just reminding you of what you already know. What is that? You know this, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So the negative is not vain. The positive, verse 2, is boldness. And you, I already pointed that out in the, in the diagram. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. Quick comment, on the, by the way, of background here. It's interesting that he's speaking to the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17, if you read the, uh, the, 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 the towns, I believe it's Amphipolis, Apollonia, and then finally Thessalonica. It's three um, cities. The distance from, um, they were in um, Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Uh, the distance from Philippi to Amphipolis is 33 miles. From Amphipolis to Apollonia, 27 miles. And then finally to Thessalonica, another 35 miles. Probably... That's probably uh, his record of the journey, which would mean they would have been on horseback or pulled in a cart on the Via Ignatia, that highway going through um, um, the Greco-Roman Empire. And this would be three stops. If that's the case, and I can't prove that, but you can at least see the mileage here, it's quite likely that he was ministering to the Thessalonians three days after he was in Philippi. Why is that significant? What happened in Philippi? They were beat thrown in prison, praising God at midnight. The jailer's converted. Then he finally reveals, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a citizen. What? <laughs> he's, got a, he's got this Roman colony on their heels. That becomes a protection for the converts that he's leaving behind because they, they know you just beat up the guy who brought this to the gospel and you had no legitimate grounds for doing it. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the Christians in Philippi to protect them. And now three days later, I mean, he's got scabs and bruises. They are darkening at this point. Scabs, I mean, probably, you know, if he can't, probably, probably can hardly change his tunic without ripping off the scabs from this beating just three days prior. They know this guy is coming with the same message and he's not backing down. This is boldness. This is boldness with truth. I mean, the natural temptation here in the face of that kind of opposition is to say, I'm just going to be a little quieter. Maybe I was muted a little bit. Man, that did not feel good. I don't want to go back to jail, and I don't want to get beat again. I'm still sore from the last one. And he shows up, and there's something way more concerning to him. Getting the truth out to these Thessalonians. That was way more important than his own comfort. Now I want you to step back and just think about these two verses. What a contrast. This contrast is pretty shocking, isn't it? If you thought about, if I were writing verses 1 and 2, and I were to say, and Paul, Paul told me, hey, you write this letter, and I need a contrast with verse 1, not vain, but, I would say, substantial. Or if he gave me verse 2 and said, give me a contrast on the front end, um, not blank, but bold, I would say, 
timid. So timid is the opposite of bold. <laughs> Vain is the opposite of substantive. He says, here's the contrast. Not vain, but bold. That's very instructive. It's so strange of a contrast that we should stop and say, wait a minute, I got a benefit from this here for a second. And this is going to apply to your parenting, to your relationship with your husband, to your labors here at GBC or in the workplace, wherever you're trying to honor the Lord. The opposite of vain ministry is timidity. The heart of substantive ministry is boldness with truth. That's interesting. That's interesting because sometimes, you know, we can talk about the danger of watering down the gospel, and that's a real danger. If we shared the gospel in a way that was flattering to our neighbors and they were like, oh, that's a great message, we've just inoculated them to the gospel. That's a problem. But notice, here's a different problem that Paul highlights that we could actually have the right content but be modeling a greater love for self than love for the person we're ministering to that we're actually timid about saying what needs to be said because we know they're not going to receive it well. This is a really, really important test for our ministry. Are we bold with offensive truth? In uh, MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel, it's one of the classics, one of my favorite MacArthur books, he says, Scripture says in the early Christians turned the world upside down, Acts 17.6. In our generation, the world is turning the church upside down. Biblically, God is sovereign, not unchurched Harry. The Bible, not a marketing plan, is supposed to be the sole blueprint and final authority for all church ministry. Ministry should meet people's real needs, not indulge their selfishness. Above all, we must bear in mind that the Lord of the church is Christ, not some couch potato with the remote control in his hand. And that's an interesting, interesting comment because he's highlighting the fact that we so often, we so often can compromise with truth out of fear of how it's going to be received. And then we start listening and thinking about our ministry according to, is it being received well? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a hazard for any preacher, oh, I hope that I hope that sermon went over well. I hope that Bible. I hope they I hope they liked what I was what I was saying. That's a constant area to have to guard, and the same is true in your ministry as well. To guard from what do my kids think of me? Because guess what, you're raising sinners, and sometimes fidelity to Christ is going to make you very unpopular with the people that you love the most. And if you don't win that battle, you'll be, prone to, you'll be prone to a lot of temptation in your ministry. You'll be prone to a lot of temptation. So, are you willing to be bold with offensive truth? I had, I had, I had another Luther quote. I was, I was like, I gave you a Luther quote last time. I'll give you another one. It's fun to think about Luther's life. Um, um, I'm a big Luther fan, but one point, one chapter in his life is very, very compelling to me, and that was when he'd already he already established that uh, he was convinced that the truth was not being taught in the Roman Catholic Church, but he was still unaware that that was deliberate on the part of the church's part. Uh, so he thought that he was actually helping out the church to recover something they'd be interested in. So for about a three-year period, from 1517 to 1520, he was still under the illusion that man, we got a mess on our hands, and I know that the church is going to want to hear about it. And so I'm just going to clarify this, and then they'll make the appropriate changes. Well, he's increasing in popularity among some Protestants, but he's, it's becoming so controversial. Basically, the entire Roman, besides a few nobles in Germany, the entire Roman Empire is totally opposed to Luther, and they view him as a heretic. And so he's written enough now that people are hearing what he's saying about salvation, and about the gospel, and the nature of man, and the nature of the church. And he's called to go to Augsburg to defend the faith. This is 1519. So it's the year before he was officially kicked out of the church as a heretic. He's traveling down to Augsburg. So the, the, you know, that's, a, that's a multiple hundred mile journey from Wittenberg in the north to Augsburg in the south, close to the um, Italian border. And as he's going down there, 
He's going through increasingly hostile territory. And there are friends of Luther who are encouraging him to soften up a bit. Because they're scared he's not going to survive the Augsburg Disputation. They think he's going to get killed. One friend said, I am much afraid that the worthy man must give way at last before the avarice and power of the partisans of indulgence. His representations have produced the little effect that the Bishop of Augsburg, our primate and metropolitan, has just ordered in the Pope's name fresh indulgences for St. Peter's at Rome. Let him haste to secure the aid of princes. Let him beware of tempting God, for he must be void of common sense if he overlooks the imminent peril he incurs. And so all this guy is looking at is what's happening. He's reading, the, he's reading the Roman times. He's reading what's happening with indulgences at St. Peter's and all that's happening down there. Like They're not listening to Peter, I mean to Luther. Uh, he's he's going to get killed. So I hope he has the common sense to just tone it down a bit. Another uh, um, friend said to him, you are right, Brother Martin. He read his stuff. He's like, you're right, but you will not succeed. Poor monk, go to your cell and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. A bishop who was a bishop of Brandenburg, he was reading his stuff and he knew that Luther was, was right. He read his stuff on indulgences and he says, in your, your thesis on indulgences, I see nothing opposed to the Catholic truth. I myself condemn these indiscreet proclamations, but for the love of peace and for regard to your bishop, discontinue writing on this subject. His um, elector in Saxony gave frequent comments about how concerned he was about the opposition that Luther was facing and um, was worried that he would even be able to continue protecting Luther. And so if you read a good history of Luther, you, you, you realize this chapter of his life is just absolutely under attack by quote-unquote friends. Everybody telling him, just tone it down. Don't be so bold. And so he was... You stopped at those words. That's a lot of you get you get that much mail from your loyal friends. You got at some point you're probably thinking like I must be off my rocker. And he had to just say this. He said, "Dear fathers, if this work be not of God, it will come to nothing. But if it is, let it go forward." And they didn't reply. He just knew this is what God has said. I know it's not offensive. And he said in many places, "I know that if." It's the Lord's work. If I, if I die defending what the Lord told me to defend, how, how can I argue with that? It's his work. And he was bold. You know, I think about this. I think about how we can articulate the gospel and we can minister um, in some sort of paper variety of faithfulness. Like we can almost, we can just have our doctrinal statement correct. But the timidity in which we present it can undermine our fidelity. An obvious illustration of this, if I come over to your house at 2 in the morning, and you and your family are asleep, and I'm just kind of like texting you, like, hey, are you guys awake in there? Your, your house is on fire. Tap on the door. I don't want to wake them up too abruptly, because that's kind of alarming to have somebody knocking on your door. Hey, guys, house is on fire. And we'll say it actually is on fire. You wouldn't believe me if I were doing that. Of course it's not on fire. You're being an idiot. If, that, if my house was really on fire, you should be banging, you know, honking the horn, yelling, throwing stuff through the window. Like, my life is in danger. The timidity undermines the truthfulness of the statement. And there's, it's just interesting. Like, we have to have thick skin, especially as parents, even to be able to say to our children, like Susanna Spurgeon said to, said to uh, Charles, you know, I, I'm going to side with the Lord, not you, if you died in your sin. And so, Paul can look back at his ministry to Thessalonica and just say, yeah, I'm so thankful. It was marked by supernatural boldness, not vanity. We can have a vain ministry and be accurate in our doctrine. But if we actually believe it, there's no other option but to be bold. Okay, so
Yeah, I'll just go ahead and let's just move on to the next point because we're going to get through these last two. So, number one, not emptiness, but boldness. And uh, what the necessity there is boldness with offensive truth. The second necessity is in verses 3 and 4, the motivation to please God. A motivation to please God. And the, um, the positive and the negative here is not trickery, but truth. Not trickery, but truth. What you need to be successful and faithful in your ministry is simply the motivation to please God. On the last day, ladies, think about it this way. On the last day, what matters is not how well your kids did in school. What matters is not their income. What matters is not whether they got married. What matters is not their ability to articulate something. What matters is not even their salvation. That matters for them, of course. And it matters for God's glory. But that does not matter for your evaluation of being a faithful mom. What matters for your being a faithful mom in that moment is your motivation for being a mom. Did you seek to be pleasing to God? Did you please God in your inner man? Look at what Paul says here. This is so profound. Verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. I mean, there's all sorts of false reasons and false motives to do ministry. Whether that's a preaching ministry or an apostolic ministry, whether it's being a mom or a dad or whatever. It's just, there's all sorts of reasons, bad reasons for, for ministry. But verse 4 says, but, here's the positive, but we, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. God who examines our hearts. I mean, how telling is that for our motives when the external evaluation of our ministry looks really, really bad? I, mean, I, I, I describe, I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, picking on my oldest here. I love him to death, but um, I'll use one more illustration from, from his childhood. He, he would probably get a kick out of it if I told him I was going to use this. You know, he, he, uh, he struggled, you know, he, he didn't know how to relate to his peers. In some ways, he still struggles with that, but he does. But, you know, he didn't know how to, how to you know, relate to any of his peers. And so, you know, um, he would go to a nursery or, or a grade school class, and we would drop him off. And it's just like, you know, just, you're kind of like just on pins and needles, like, how, how long until they text me? Um, you know, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be punches thrown. Something's going to be damaged. Something's going to be... You know, and this is, it's not like this is new stuff. Like, we know it's going to happen. We are, we, we, as, as best and as consistent as we can, we are trying to deal with this every day. And, uh, you know, like a nonverbal kid and all of his peers are just having conversation. And he's just like, well, I'll get in on this. <laughs> so we're like, okay, how long, how long is he going to be in, uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like a bet, you know. Okay, how long, I think you've got eight minutes before we get a text from the teacher today. You know, and we drop him off. And so one day I come back, and I had never heard from the teacher. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, the service is over, and, like, nothing happened over there in the, in the, sec- in the, in the second grade room? That's incredible. And I go over there to pick him up, and I'm like, oh, hey, um, Pastor Anderson. Oh, what happened? <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling like, oh, something's coming. My, my, credit, my, my qualifications are on the line here. Hey, we had some problems with your son, you know. Um, so... He got into some uh, some candy, and he chewed up some candies, and he spit them out and put them in Susie's Bible, and um, and he spilled the crayons and, uh, and chewed one of them up and spit them all over Sumiso's art project. And I'm like, and I'm like that's it. Way to go! Like Micah, give me a high five! Like that's awesome, you know. And I'm like, this is the greatest day in parenting. I'm like, and it's like, and then they're like, okay, now we know where the problem is. It's the dad, you know. And it's just funny because. It's like I had to learn a long, long time ago. It's like you, I cannot be concerned about, I mean, I have to be concerned to some degree about what people think. I mean, there's, there's a level of being above reproach. But my success as a dad is, cannot be what people think of what my parenting looks like. I have to be able to be comfortable standing before the Lord saying, Lord, I, as I took your word, I applied it as, with imperf- in imperfect ways, but my goal was to apply it faithfully Thank you for the grace to be able to enable me to do that faithfully. And I trust that you know better how to parent my kids than I do. But successful parenting is only going to come when I'm content being pleasing to God, not man.
That was Paul's evaluation of his ministry. How could Paul know that the Thessalonians were elect? How does he know that it came with power? How does he know that their faith went forward throughout Achaia and Macedonia? Because he knows that he ministered with boldness, with offensive truth. He knows that his motivation was to please God. He didn't do it out of selfish gain. He wasn't doing it out of what he got out of it. His goal in parenting was not to be esteemed as the supermom or to teach the next Bible study. It wasn't anything that had to do with personal significance at all. It was, I just want to be pleasing to the Lord. I just want the Lord to smile at me in this ministry. I remember one time coming home and April saying, April saying, you know, man, the day was horrible. This is what happened. She was describing this day of tyranny. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm trying to set her, I'm trying to, you know, set the bar a little bit lower. I'm like, babe, you know, we went to sleep and there was four kids alive on the other end of the house. I mean, that's a successful day. And she's like, come on, John. I'm like, this is a horrible day. And I said, no, listen, just remember, the goal of any day is not to avoid a fight. It's not to avoid disobedience. It's to be faithful to the Lord shepherding through that moment. That's, that's success. If success were, mar- were, were marked by perfectly obedient children, then some of the greatest hypocrites in the history of the church would be the most successful parents. Your job is to please the Lord. Please the Lord. So the question is not, oh man, this was a, a tragedy. No, a train, we, should, we should orient our conscience in our, evaluating our ministry, not by how well things go externally, but by how well we were pleasing to the Lord in our inner man. That happens in the, in the church. Some sort of catastrophic tragedy in the church. We've got fires to put out. And it's like, oh, no, this couldn't be worse. No, actually, the evaluation ministry in this moment is, am I pleasing to Christ? Same thing in the home. Oh, no. we got one kid over here doing this, and one kid is up in the treehouse, and another kid's getting pushed out of the treehouse. Oh, no. It's like, okay, we got to, Lord, I just want to be pleasing to you. What's this going to look like today? What's it look like to please the Lord? Evaluate your ministry according to verses 3 and 4. And I don't imagine that any of you are seeking to perpetrate error. But you know what? There are a lot of impure motives for, for your ministries. There's a lot of impure motives that you have to guard against. Even um, sometimes, I can imagine, praise from your husband. Praise from the ladies in the small group, being esteemed a certain way. You know, God's given you an incredible calling. Whatever, wherever he's placed you, whatever roles he's given you, whatever opportunities you have to articulate truth, to encourage people here at GBC, he's given you an incredible calling. And in, in those areas of where, where you apply most of your labor, there's, a, there's a, a real strong temptation to be able to take significance out of it and to find your significance in it. And you have to be able to say, I, I cannot be doing this for what I get out of it. I have to be doing this simply, and I have to be content simply with pleasing Christ. Am I okay being perceived as a failure by everybody on the face of the planet so long as Christ is smiling at what's going on in my soul? That's where Paul lived. I find that so compelling. Verses 2 and 3. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, sorry. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I mean, those, that's such a compelling passage to just say, what if everybody on the face of the planet thought I was the, the greatest failure, but I was pleasing to Christ in the inner man? Is that enough for me? Is that enough for me? So, not vain, but bold. Not emptiness, but boldness. Not trickery, but truth. The point on the first one is boldness with offensive truth. The point on the second is motivation to please God. And now, verses 5 through 8, freedom from ourselves. You can just write in, freedom from ourselves. And you can write that next to the pair that I wrote on your outline. The negative is selfishness. The positive is selflessness. Not self selfishness, but selflessness. And so freedom from ourselves. Is that the characteristic of your ministry? Chapter 2, verse 5. Another 4. Here we go again. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Nor with a pretext for greed. Pretext is, think of, when you, hear, when you see the word pretext, 
you know, obviously that's like a, a motive, a, um, a prior motive that produced something, but almost pretext, think of like a mask, like a covering for greed, like we're trying to hide greed. So greed was the motive and I'm trying to hide it. So a pretext for greed. So there can be greediness in Paul's case, somebody could come to the Thessalonians and they might have a pretext of being esteemed as a better preacher than Paul. They might have the pretext of getting money from the Thessalonians. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to do that kind of thing. So now he's saying, look, this was not my motive to flatter you or I, didn't, I wasn't coming with a, with a mask trying to hide the true motive of greed. Nor, verse 6, did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. I mean, how about that? He actually had the ability to say, by the way, you ought to esteem me highly because I'm an apostle. I'm an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, and uh, I'm giving you direct revelation from God. I mean, you should be pretty impressed with me, and I got a lot of authority here. He doesn't even go there. He doesn't even want to go there. That's not his motive. It's interesting how much that motivates some of our relationships. I remember a student who um, uh, came to me. Um, it was it was interesting. He just he came up to me and was just. I, and I think he, in his mind, he was just trying to be encouraging. And he's just you know he's a young student, and young collegian, and he's like, hey, Pastor John. He's like, you know, I've just been I've been listening to you, and um, you're actually you're actually getting better. And I was like, oh thanks, you know, like everybody needs to grow. I hope I'm growing, you know. Just kind of kind of amused by it because he just was like, and I'm thinking like, I hope you're listening to the text because you <laughs> sound like you're a professional. Um, he left within months, left the church. And it was just so clear in that moment that he had something to get. It was kind of like he's just greasing the slide. There was just, there was greed, there was self-promotion, there was a lot going on and he just, whatever, and whatever he perceived me to be, he saw me as some sort of, you know, hurdle to get to where he was hoping to get to. Um, I remember preaching one time um, in Ephesians, and uh, this was in uh, my former church, and uh, Jerry, my pastor, was preaching in the main service in Romans the following, ser- the following hour. So this, this student came to our, our um, fellowship group and heard Ephesians, it goes, it goes here's the Roman sermon, and then this was his first Sunday at, at, at our church, and he comes to me and he's just like, Man, this is amazing. He starts going on about the church and starts going on about how amazing it is and how it's better than anything he's ever been to. And, I, and, and that was the last time he was at our church. He never came back. And it's just interesting. When greed is the economy, flattery is the currency. So when you want something, you just flatter to get it. And that's an, a constant occupational hazard for a preacher and it's a very incredible threat for moms so Paul says look I didn't come with that motive I wasn't trying to get something out of you I didn't come to grease the slide to make you feel a certain way Um, verse 7 and 8 here's the positive selflessness we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children I mean, that doesn't even require commentary in this room. It's just, it's just profound, you know, when we, had our, when we started having children and just thinking about, just seeing, you know, April's, like, incredible, like, tenacious desire to make sure that her children were taken care of. I mean, you know, she could sleep through, like, a train wreck, and then all of a sudden we have a baby, and she's like, oh, you need something. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm so out of, I'm, I don't even know what's going on. I'm like, how did you... And then, you know, for like the first two kids, I think it was like almost every day after about a month, I'm like, hey, he slept through the night. And she's like, he didn't sleep through the night. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm just like sleeping through, I'm just like a log, you know, like I'm a dead man over there. And, uh, and she's just like, you know, the, the most incredible need. And she's just intuitive. It's just intuitive with you moms. Paul says, that was my motive in ministry. You don't. You don't do it because your six-week-old just suddenly says, Hey, by the way, Mom, thank you so much! I got you an award here for Mother of Infant of the Year. Um, you know, there's no gratitude. There's no expression of appreciation. You just, it's intuitive. It's just part, it's hardwired into what it means to be a mom. And that element, by God's common grace that is usually very typical for moms, is the picture that Paul has in his mind for ministry. Doing that selflessly, sacrificially, 
tirelessly, when there's no praise, when there's no thanks, when there's no gratitude in return, simply because, verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. That's, that's incredibly important. You know, you might, you might walk away, if you, took, if you took verses 1 and 2 and applied it to parenting, okay, boldness with the offensive truth, you might think that a faithful mom is just, yep, just beat the kids over the head with the truth, and then who cares how, you know, about a relationship. No, that's not, it does not follow who cares about the relationship. What follows is, I'm actually absolutely bold with the truth because you are so dear to me. I want a relationship with you, but it actually will never sever my devotion to God. And if it's unreturned, if it's unrequited love, if it's never appreciated, I will still give it because that's how much I love God and I love you. I mean, that's ministry. That's how to evaluate ministry. And it's hard. It's hard when people you're ministering to respond with animosity. I remember one guy pouring, pouring into a guy for years, discipling him. Discipling. I discipled him for years and years and years. We start premarital and, um, you know, I'm just getting to know his fiance and uh, discover some sin in the relationship and start shepherding through that. And in the course of a week, um, we went from being having an incredible relationship, what seemed like an incredible relationship, but obviously exposed as superficial, to within the week, within seven days, he was leveling accusations at me that I was disqualified to be a pastor. And I remember thinking, like, what? Like, where did that come from? And I just remember, I just remember the burden of that. Like, you know, he, he was leveling these accusations, and as I was hearing them, I'm like, well, he said, he said number one, you're, de- you're divisive. Number two, you're proud. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I am proud. Um, divisive? No, I'm never... The conscience didn't register anything there. And I remember talking to my pastor, and I'm like, man, this was hard. Like, I'm just trying to pour into this guy, and now he's just leveling his accusations. I'm like, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know of any device, I don't know of any divisiveness. I know I have that capability. I don't, I'm not, I'm not aware of anything in my life that would be called divisive. I am proud. He's right about that. You know, and Jerry just said, listen, you got to keep loving the guy. Blow off. You can't listen to the critic. If you, if you blow off a guy who's walking in holiness and in humility. That's one thing. But if you blow off a young guy who you just exposed in his sin, that's, that, his accusation has no, should have no merit. should be watered off a duck's back. Just keep loving. Selfless. Even when you're being accused. You know, it's just compelling ministry right there. So, ladies, these three, these three elements here, these three elements ought to characterize our ministry. And notice that none of them have to do with what we often can imagine. Sometimes we get concerned about, hey, how, how are they doing developmentally? How are they doing education-wise? How are we doing, you know? And we, we imagine what it's going to be like when we, by the time we're empty nesters. And all of it goes into bad standards for evaluating your ministry. You've got to go back to the biblical standard. All three of these traits have to do with your inner man. They have to do with the inner man. Are you bold with offensive truth? Are you motivated by pleasing God? And are you free from self-will? Yourself, your self-significance, what you get out of it. Are you selfless in your ministry? And if that's true, then praise God for faithful ministry. That's all you can do. And that's all God asks you to do. He doesn't ask you to control the outcome. He doesn't ask you to manipulate conversions. He doesn't ask you to speed up sanctification of the ladies in your, in, your, in, your, in your small group. He doesn't ask you to do anything of those things outside your control. He asks you to be faithful to these three traits. So hopefully that's clarifying and even liberating at times. Liberating from some of the false standards that we impose on our own ministries, which are really, really unfortunate. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for 1 Thessalonians 2. This is such a profound text, Lord. It's, it's so clarifying. It's so refreshing, and it really liberates us. Um, Lord, it should free us from 
the success syndrome, imagining that we know what success looks like. Lord, I pray that we would find our hearts humbled by Paul's example. I pray that we would be freed up to care about nothing more than pleasing you, uh, being faithful and bold with your truth, um, to speak and to minister and to live in such a way that you are clearly our only audience and that we would be we could look at our ministry and look at our labors and be able to see uh, selflessness. That we're not doing it for what we get out of it, but that we're doing it so that you'd be glorified. And so, Lord, um, let's pray for these ladies as they talk about this text, give them clarity about even ways that this has applied or where, ways that they have been convicted. Um, give them clarity about um, the corrective element and, and how, to, how to walk out of it and how to benefit from this instruction and from Paul's example. Lord, we're so thankful for the clarity of your word, and we're so thankful that you protect us from some of the false goals, uh, standards, marks of ministry that we can, we can create in our own mind. Free us from that. Satan would love to make us useless in our ministries because of despair over not meeting fake standards. Or... He would love to ruin our ministry usefulness by an inflated sense of success because we met the wrong standards that are things that we actually can do in the flesh. Help us to be motivated by these standards, which can only be produced by your Spirit as we yield our will and obey you in these ministries. In your name we pray. Amen.